Jerry's, um, I think he, let's see, he just had his uh, 85th birthday. I met him when I moved to Terre Haute, Indiana in 2003, back when he was a young buck, uh, because I knew that I needed uh, to learn from my elders and people who are a lot further down the road. And uh, the thing I learned from Jerry is I took him out to breakfast every other week uh, at a little diner was I learned how to cry from Jerry. Uh, he was a guy that uh, was was so in love with the Lord and cared so much about people. He was notorious for getting into conversations and, and uh, people knew him as the crier, you know, and that was a season of life where I didn't know how to cry uh, at all. Uh, so he taught me that it was actually a very healthy thing to be able to do that. And, and so anyway, I, Jerry is a dear friend of mine still to this day. Um, I wanted to go back on just a couple things just to clarify uh, before we move forward. One is I keep referring to these lists that we created that first night. I don't want to be unfair and, and mean about those lists that we, uh, we wrote out, uh, things um, that, we, that we presume to be markers of maturity, markers of godliness. I want to be really clear that those things are uh, very well could be means through which we cultivate love for the Lord and love for others, and so I don't want to diminish their importance. And, um, and or they could be things that are the effect of um, loving the Lord and loving others. And so, yeah, again, I, the only reason I, I bring them up in such a pressing way is I think sometimes, if not a lot of times, we're, we're prone to view them as the ultimate things in and of themselves. And, and that's what Paul, I think, is, among other things, warning us away from. Um, about six years ago, uh, we had just moved to St. Louis, and um, I had brought a team of former students who are now on staff with us, and uh, I wanted uh, to set up a training for them. And in town, uh, I had started to attend a seminary there, and there is a professor who is there now. He's still there. Uh, his name's Jerem Bars, and Jerem has since become, uh, again, one of my dearest friends and mentors in my life. And I asked him if he would come in to speak to our staff team. He is the professor there at Covenant Seminary uh, for cultural engagement, evangelism. Uh, he, uh, if you're familiar with with names like Francis Schaefer, he was he worked with Francis Schaefer as his gardener. Uh, for an organization called Labrie, which is a, a beautiful organization that, that uh, still exists today. And, and so, uh, Jerem, um, brilliant literary scholar, teaches classes on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and you, you name the author. He, he's just, it blows my mind. I love getting time with him. I'm getting lunch with him on Monday, actually. And uh, he came in to do this training for our staff team, and it was supposed to be training on evangelism. Um, that's what we did on the college campus. So I wanted a seminary professor to come and train us on evangelism. And, and um, Jerem spent uh, the full two and a half days straight just telling stories uh, about people who God's brought into his life and how he would, how he would um, love them, believing that, uh, number one, all image bearers of God regardless of their brokenness and the effects of the fall in their life, are worthy and, and uh, have the dignity that deserves love. 
and believing also that it is through loving them uh, that what was set up here just a second ago and Eric pointed out, it's through love that we have the opportunity to begin to engage them on matters of faith, uh, exposing them to gospel, things like that. And Jerem just went story after story. And Jerem's also a crier. And so he's crying the whole time about how much he loves these people and cares for the, how much time he spent praying for them. And, and I was sitting in the back of the room as my staff team were there feeling this just really heavy conviction. Because I think what I was realizing as Jerem was speaking was that this is a man in front of me who is... It, who's a lot like Christ. And here I am, uh, this is where I kind of, for myself, coined a phrase, sitting with my ministry righteousness, successful ministry righteousness is what I called it. We, we had a very big student ministry, and I thought that because of that, because there is a really successful ministry, that things m- I must be doing okay. I must be on, like, the right trajectory in terms of my walk with God. Maybe this I viewed it subconsciously. This is kind of the Lord's stamp of approval that there was a lot of college students around. And, and, and I was sitting in that room just... Uh, crying because I was realizing, no, what, what it means to be like Jesus is to be like that guy, not, you know, not what I'm giving my time toward. And um, not that, you know, again, not that what I was giving my time toward wasn't of value, but again, as we just learned without love, nothing. And uh, I, I, Maggie and I both point to that year of my life being a year of personal revival for me where I realized that if I want to be like Christ, I really need to learn to love people like Christ loved people and bear with them. And that's where we're going uh, here with 1 Corinthians. Um, as I mentioned, I, work, I worked, past tense now, with college students for 16 years. Um, and, a, and a real privilege and opportunity of that was that I got to see a lot of them get married off um, I think my wife and I, at last count, had been in or officiated about 40 weddings or, or something like that. We've, we've been around the block with those. I've done a couple with Eric. Actually, we officiated one together not too long ago. And, uh, 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 and this is just kind of a shameless plug. As a way to kind of stay involved with people's lives as I'm transitioning this new phase of life, I've actually started a company. I've, I've just felt really empowered recently. So I started a company to do some premarital advisement. Uh, I'm also trying to set up a, a way through which, you know, we see the doctor or dentist once or twice a year for, for health checkups and things like that. Uh, for some of us, we're seeing the doctor a whole lot more uh, these days, but typically, you know, they say that's a, that's a good pattern. I thought it would be, you know, I wish I had somebody, I've thought about this a long time, I wish I had somebody that I could kind of view it as a marriage checkup for my wife and I. So that's kind of the service we're trying to set up and provide. And I, I say that really, well, one, to shamelessly plug it, you know, if anybody uh, knows people getting married or could use that, please let them know, give them my contact information. But two is we have found ourselves in the middle of a lot of discussions about love. Right? When we do premarital counseling, one of the most significant aspects uh, we really have to press in on is shifting uh, people's paradigm of what love actually is away from what the culture has defined it as, which is generally speaking selfish love to what the Bible defines it as, what we're learning about this weekend, selfless love, right? That love isn't primarily about what you need and what you want and how this person can meet your desires and and whether or not it's convenient or not at that moment in time to love or show affection to that person or whatever. Two, 
how do I selflessly give myself to this person, you know, regardless of, of circumstances or personal desires or wants? That, because if, we, you know, if, if young couples, not just young couples, if we don't get that, we just miss the boat entirely on marriage, right? And, and if you, you know, I'm in the, I have the luxury of uh, being up here and not being here at Cape of knowing nobody's dynamics. <laughs> I haven't been told anybody's dynamics, uh, but if your marriage is in a hard spot, uh, oftentimes, not every time, oftentimes it can be deduced back to that. Is my paradigm of love right now self-preserving or other, in our case, her preserving, right? Uh, her building up. Is it for my building up? Is it for her building up? You know, how, is it so that for my convenience that, so, so that the burdens are taken off my plate or is it so that the burdens are taken off her plate, right? So that, anyway, I say all that to say this is what we spend a lot of time talking about in premarital counseling with students. Um, and, uh, and one of the passages, once we finally get through premarital counseling, that they often want us to read is this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 7. And oh yeah, Brett, if you could throw in that first part of verse 8, that would be really helpful too. And so we, we find ourselves reading that passage. As a result, uh, this, this passage has gotten a bit of a reputation, as I've mentioned over and over again this weekend, of being romantic and gushy and idealistic. Um, but we don't... I would submit to you, maybe as a result of that, often take the time to understand it. And, uh, and I think what you're going to see from this passage is that it is actually hyper-practical, very practical, and at the same time beautifully personified. You know, for somebody like me, speaking on a passage like this, there's an unfortunate reality to this. It's very basic. Right? We're going to look at some words and, and I don't, we don't have any fancy way to, to help you understand it, right? DT asked me after the first night, he's like, I really hope you're going to get into like what love is and how it is. And I am, that's what we're going to look at. What you're going to find as we're looking at it is that this, I didn't need to teach you about it. You, you already know this stuff. I mean, this is real basic. Uh, so, so what I'm going to be pressing into is not so much what these things mean, although we're going to talk about what they mean, uh, we got to be asking ourselves the question, okay, I know this. Am I, am I this, though? Am I growing in this? And that's where we've been this whole weekend. And so let's look at the passage together. Back at 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to start with verse 4. I'm going to read it. Please follow along. We'll go all the way through verse 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth, with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let me pray before we go any further. Father, thanks for the um, 
these very basic yet beautifully profound words. Thank you that they are practical and they are personified in your son, Jesus. Help us to understand them and, uh, and live them out. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so you have to keep in mind that where we just came from with those first three verses, Paul has really kind of put people in their seats. He's kind of leveled the playing field. You can imagine, again, if you're in that audience, uh, that on some level, uh, people are kind of hanging on, their, on the edges of their seats. They want to know, okay, you're, you're making your point here, Paul. What is love? Teach us what this word, this relatively new word, agape, means. How do we do this? He's established the false indicators of maturity. Um, so you can imagine how they're feeling, right? They, they, they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty. I hope we are as well to know how do we actually go do this. He's deconstructed notions of maturity, and now he's going to construct a robust, and I'd, I'd argue a personified biblical paradigm of what love is. These are things that I've already said. Why does he do this, though? Uh, because we, like the church in Corinth, have a finite and limited notion of love. You've heard me already refer to this multiple times. This was a relatively new word. This was a word that was somewhat hijacked by the church in order to um, uh, give, uh, give, a, give a word to the specific type of love that was manifested in what Christ did for us. So this was kind of a hijacked word, this, this word agape. And so uh, quite literally, they didn't know what the word meant. And how is it that we are supposed to grow in our capacity to love if our only understanding of love is like Hallmark card level, right? And, and maybe there's some really great Hallmark cards out there, so I don't mean to diminish Hallmark cards. I'm just saying, you know, if, if our understanding of love, uh, if we don't know what it means, how are we supposed to live it out? How are we supposed to live it out? So Paul realized he has to get very practical and uh, very uh, personal in this text. So the big idea is this, because God personified love through Christ, we must learn to love through his power. Because he's personified it in Christ, it is incumbent on us to learn to love through, in, with his power. So the question we're going to tackle is how can we learn to love? And we're going to look at three answers to that from this passage, verses 4 through 5, or we must learn to love despite ourselves. We must, verses 5, sorry, 5b through 6, we must learn to love despite others. In verse 7, we must learn to love despite our doubts. Uh, and you could put there our doubts, um, our struggles in our faith. I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase that still. So let's begin with verses 4 through 5. I'm going to read it again. Get your nose in it with me. I'm just going to start there and go through the first part of 5 because that's where the sentence ends. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Um, take note just how ordinary and obvious these words are. Uh, I, I have never had to hit a knuckleball, uh, but this feels like a knuckleball. You know, from what I understand about a knuckleball is that you just got this slow-moving, fat baseball coming at you, 
and you just think you're going to tee off on it and it just does something unpredictable, you know, and you just, you look like a fool, right? That's kind of what I feel like when I read these words. It feels like just this, this kind of slow moving, really obvious, I, I should be able to do that. Patient, kind, these aren't even big words, right? These are just, these are small words. Does not envy or boast, okay. But it's knuckleball, isn't it? These aren't easy. I don't want I don't want you to think, I don't want you to hear me say that these are easy. We know these aren't easy. Well, let's look at those first two. Uh, these are known kind of as the two sides of the same coin, and that coin being the model of God's character. Uh, one commentator said they represent respectively love's necessary passive and active responses towards one another. Now, what we're describing here in this first little section are aspects of love that are just they're just inside of us. We have, to, we have to learn to love despite ourselves, despite that we're not prone to patience and we're not prone to kindness. But these are just two sides of the same coin. Uh, he's stating one in kind of a, uh, and, and then he goes on to state more clearly what this means, uh, kind of using a, a string of negatives here. Does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. It's, he's just spelling out for us what is, patient, what is patience and kindness. What is patience and kindness? And it's these things. Uh, envy, love is not displeased at the success of others. It actually celebrates it. These are just Again, very simple definitions for us to work off of. That's what envy is. Boasting. Love does not show off or heap praises on oneself. It deflects for the glory of God, not in some kind of false humility way. Um, arrogance. It, uh, puffed upness. Love is humble. Um, love resists the temptation to act rudely. What does that mean? To behave disgracefully, indecently, dishonorably. It actually gives grace and honor to people. Love resists the temptation to act selfishly. It, it thinks for the interest and the welfare of others. This is, again, there's nothing really fancy here. It doesn't mean it's easy. There's just nothing really fancy here. This, this may be a helpful distinction or not. This is broken up kind of historically this way. Uh, but each of these temptations arise out of our own sinful longings and desires. These happen inside of us whether or whether or not anyone says anything directly or overtly to us. They're just in there. This, this is with or without outside influence. They're just there. I, I refer to them, all of them, as ugly weeds that have grown in the cracks of our brokenness and insecurities. That's kind of how I think about this list of, of arrogance and pride and temptation to being rude and, and these words, temptation to act self. They're just there. And as we are being continually remade, there's still all these cracks in our being, and they just kind of are growing up there through those cracks of our brokenness and our insecurities and the challenges we've had with our own stories. I'm from the Atlanta area. I grew up about 20 minutes east of Atlanta, an area called Stone Mountain. And as you guys know, you, you guys up here, uh, I, I guess would be the northern border of Southerners. Uh, I don't know how, how you guys refer to yourself here at Cape. We were right there in the middle of being, uh, in the middle of Southern hospitality or so it's called, which is really just a laughable way of saying we, we know how to fake it, uh, you know, f fake love. Uh, that's not what Paul's getting at here. He's not getting at any kind of uh, surface level 
shallow hospitality, and I, and I mean that in a negative sense, that's obviously not a, a word that's used also in a real positive way. Um, what he's getting at here is, is an actual genuine disposition of our hearts. So when he says kindness and patience, again, it's not kind of just this um, surfacey smiling things off for patience. It's not just this kind of friendly exterior. He really means, no, 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 like kindness. Are you kind? Um, that has to come, by the way, from the outside. That has to come from an outside source that we then embrace, internalize, and give away. That, that's nothing that, in, in a genuine sense, that's nothing that's just in there. Right? Think about how these words were landing in the church that night when they first heard it. I mean, you can almost imagine some people kind of nudging each other. Did you hear him say arrogant? He's probably talking about you. Mom, dad, did you hear him say patient? You know, you can imagine that's kind of what's happening there. People are getting a little squirmy here. But he he goes after so many different things, he just levels the playing field for us all, right? We're all nudging each other, so to speak. From here, Paul shifts to actions and attitudes that are responding to others. So let's look at uh, the very next little passage there, 5b through the end of 6, and he goes on. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Again, defining some terms. It is not irritable or resentful, not letting yourself become carried away in anger or contemplating evil. Let's just pause here for a second because I'm learning something I just would like to offer to you and, and, and maybe after we're done here you can give me some of your thoughts as well because I am prone to being resentful I'm prone to being irritated, and often what, how I know that that's occurred is I'm, I, I have what I've started to call internal uh, monologues with kind of these people that have bothered me. Now, now the, this section is specifically talking about some exterior forces coming to bear on your life. People have wronged you. They have wronged somebody you love. They have wronged a value of yours that you have prioritized, and these are responses to those type of dynamics. And so I find myself quite more often than I like to admit, uh, sometimes even staying up late at night, having these internal monologues where I am uh, verbally backhanding whoever it is that wrong, you know, wronged me. And they are, they're always getting uh, thoroughly defeated by my verbal onslaught, right? They can't defend themselves in my own mind. It's, it's, it's kind of convenient. And I started to think about this reality like I, I'm talking to somebody when I have these internal monologues. I'm talking to somebody. And if the Lord would have me to love these people, then it's not him that I'm talking with and to. So who is it that's helping lead me through these internal monologues I'm having that are keeping me awake or not? You know, it's the enemy. I mean, that's the enemy. I'm having an in, I've started to call them internal demonic dialogue. I don't know if you have any of those... Um, He goes on, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. What does that mean? Love hates injustice and is committed to what's right. This is a good 
point, by the way, to insert this little thought as well about what it means to truly love one another here as brothers in Christ. Now, there's a unique aspect to it on some level of what it truly means to be loving here because loving, as we learn from John 1, 14, is full of grace and truth, right? So loving, how is it said? Uh, To love someone... With grace, but no truth is is to uh, is to not be truly loving. I think that's how I've heard it said. If, if we see brothers who are not honoring the Lord with their behaviors or their attitudes, if we see them as brothers and do not talk with them graciously, presenting truth to them about those actions and attitudes, we are not loving them. Now, obviously. There's a way to go about that, right? Because we can also be on the other end of the spectrum and love to point things out to people or or our children or our spouses or coworkers and not have it undergirded and wrapped with true grace. And that's not loving either, right? But what would it look like if there was that grace-truth dynamic here? I think that's part of what Paul's getting at here in terms of committed to what's right. And, and love also hates injustice. That's an interesting phrase. Are we people that really hate injustice? Uh, or have we become so saturated by stories of injustice that it, we don't even pay attention to them anymore on our news feeds? Especially those injustices that we can actually participate in rectifying close to home. Uh, quick application here. I just want to drop this into our time together. By the way, if, if a name or two or a dozen of people that we do not love well has just dropped into your mind, uh, um, that could be the spirit, right? As, as we're processing uh, how challenging this is. And depending on the circumstance, uh, it, meaning it may be more easier said than done, but that might be the Lord pushing us to actually love that individual. Maybe it's that uh, awful neighbor, um, roommate, friend in school uh, that, that for some reason just doesn't seem to like us and or picks on us. Uh, I'm just trying to think of a number of different dynamics. Um, if those names have kind of sprung into your mind, that's, that's typically the spirit saying, all right, well, here we go, buckle up. It's not going to be easy, but as you guys know, uh, repentance never is. At the same time, repentance is always uh, coupled with this, this freedom uh, and this freedom from shame, too, that once we finally get over the barrier of it, it's like, oh, okay, that's, what, that's right. Uh, my wife and I were driving back from our spring break with our girls and she said something to me uh, I don't even remember what it is right now and I just got so angry and responded so poorly to her we're in the front seat of the van y'all know how that is they're in the back doing whatever and we're having this fight in the front and I got so angry with what she said and I said you're just you know I said something uh, I I wouldn't not tell you if I could remember it I'm not trying to hide it Uh, I have no shame uh uh, I mean, it's shameful, but I have no, you know, I don't mind sharing it. It was something like, you're driving me crazy. Just, just give, me a, give me some space, you know. Been in the van for 14 hours or something. And, of course, I put my earphones in, and the spirit goes to work. 
and I'm sitting there. I can't even enjoy what I'm listening to because I know I have to apologize to her, and she's sitting right here, and I'm like, ah, I don't want to. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to apologize. You know, I don't want to do this. I hate apologizing. You know, and, and then it's finally like, Brad, you know, this is. This was maybe a, a sanctifying internal monologue, right? Because it led to actually good fruit. I apologized to her. And you know what happens. Uh, I, I guess I hope what happens is what happened. My wife gave me grace and said she forgave me. And we went on to have great conversation for the rest of the car ride. And that, I thought, how silly was it for me for an hour to just be seething and, and so angry? I didn't want to apologize. I didn't want to have to humble myself in that way, you know. And, and you got to remember here, Jesus, Jesus uh, it, it, this is painful enough of a process uh, to, to love people this way. Um, but then when you, when you tie in Matthew 5, 43 through 47, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may not be sons, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The implication, your father loves everybody. You need to be his son and love everybody, even if they're your enemies. He, he loved you when you were an enemy. You need to be his son and love your enemies the same way he loved you. And Jesus takes this little, this dagger we've already gotten from this passage, and he just, you know. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Implication, we, we're called to love everybody. This takes a ridiculous amount of humility. This is the knuckleball aspect, right? It's like, well, yeah, of course. Okay, are we doing it? Oh, whiff. Nowhere do you find, as I think I mentioned, this being easy. Implication isn't that it's easy, but it is manly because it takes courage in a confidence in the Lord. And then in verse 7, he switches categories again on, on this topic of love, and he says, Loves, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We must learn to love despite our doubts. What's he getting at here is that each and every one of us at each and every one of these tables is dealing with any number of hardships right now. But in our love, if our love is genuine, our love for the Lord and our love for any individuals who might be a part of this hardship bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So whether it is a job dynamic, a marriage dynamic, a parenting challenge, you just go down the list of hardships, the range of severity. Love bears through them believes through them, hopes through them, and and endures through them. And then Paul concludes here in verse 8 through 13. Look at that with me. And he does something uh, he always does. He provides us with an exhortation, and he provides us with some encouragement in these passages. Um, If you look with me at the passage, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. For tongues, they'll cease. For knowledge, they'll pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul does is he uses two metaphors here, one to exhort and one to encourage. First he exhorts by using the metaphor of a growing uh, growing from a child to a man, which, by the way, is a very fuzzy category in our current cultural moment. Uh, the, the metaphor is somewhat lost in our culture, right? I mean, to, to Paul's audience, that would have meant something entirely different than it means now. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Uh, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That meant something to that culture that it no longer means to this culture because a lot of people continue to think and reason and speak like a child well into their adult years. It's actually being called extended adolescence all the way into 30s at this point in, in, our, in our kind of cultural moment. But back then it was a metaphor that actually meant something. It meant that there was a, a, a period of time in which boys actually stopped trying to be childish and grew into men and were shepherded through that process by their fathers and their grandfathers and their uncles and the community that was around them. And so what Paul's getting at here with this exhortation, I believe we spoke about it in one of Eric's question. Uh, questions that he asked the guys up here earlier was that it takes intentionality. This takes intentionality and effort. You're going to need three things primarily, three things primarily outside of just the grace of God, right? We already have established that. Three things primarily. You're going to need the preached word of God. You're going to need each other and you're going to need to be around people who are difficult to love. That's how you grow in love, You're going to need the the preached word of God. You're going to need each other, which I think actually could be the hardest one for us to apply as guys in this kind of cultural moment. And you're going to need to be around people who are difficult to love so that you can keep being challenged in all these things and learning how to sacrificially love those people, right? But without those three things in the grace of God, we really don't stand a chance. So that's Paul's exhortation here. It takes intentionality to to grow from people who really struggle with love. Maybe that hollowness factor to people who are really loving well, that just doesn't happen apart from these type of dynamics. And it's important to note out that each of these verbs are present and continuous. They denote actions and attitudes which have become habitual and grained gradually by constant repetition. That's what this takes reps. Takes reps. The second thing he does through the second metaphor is he encourages. He uses the metaphor of a mirror to remind us that one day this process is going to be complete. Uh, If you're going to pursue this, you're going to stumble through it. You're going to stumble through it. But don't miss the words in verse 12 right there. Look what he says. Even as I have been fully known. What does he mean there? Even though you are not complete, we are far from it. Amen? Can we at least say that this weekend? We are far from this. Even though we are incomplete, God, God's love for you, for you is completed. And we were, I was having a conversation just last night. Um, love is personified in this passage for us. For us, not just you, for us. I mean, look at it. 
many people have observed you can just drop the name of Jesus there for love and describe his nature. Jesus is patient and kind for us, toward us. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude toward us. He does not insist on his own way, demonstrated by the cross. He's not irritated or resentful toward us. That, that irritated one means a lot to me, particularly when I think about Christ. He's not irritated by me. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. He bears all things for me. He believes for me. He's actually intercessing for me right now before the Father. He hopes all things for me. He endures all things that I mess up. He knows you entirely and fully. And if anyone else knew you entirely and fully, they'd run away and get fed up. But not him. As a matter of fact, Scripture is really clear. Every day he's right back at work on you because his mercies are new every morning. So just to, just to wrap up, I wanted to um, read this. I think it's there in your notebooks. It's something I read uh, about this passage, this still more excellent way that we looked at this morning. It's that very last phrase of chapter 12, and listen to what this one commentator said, and I, and, and I think it's an appropriate way to conclude. When applied to a local church, us, this passage becomes dynamite. That's what I hope we experienced this, this weekend. It uncovers all the weaknesses, gaps, failures, and sins in any Christian community. So if you're sitting there thinking, whew, we got a long way to go, fellas, you're not alone. Any Christian community. It is a particular challenge to any church which has seen outward success in its ministry. These words cut us down to size. They humble us because we begin to see what really matters to God. They redirect us as the body of Christ to our true calling. It is probably good for any congregation to assess its life together from time to time in the mirror of this chapter. My hope for you is that you'd be a church um, that grows to love people really well, love each other really well. And I want to wrap up by just saying what Paul said at the very end of his letter as, as kind, of a, kind of a benediction to you guys. Um, so if you would just stand with me. Let's stand real quick. I don't, know if you, uh, I don't know if you have the practice here or not of benediction, do you? Great. What we do at our church is uh, kind of extend our hands to receive it like this, uh, believing this is the word of God and the blessing of God, and this is how the people of God for, for centuries would, uh, would do this together as a, as a community of people. So I'm just going to read this. This is from 1 Corinthians 16, 23 through 24. It's really short, but I think it's um, exactly how I'd want to end. This is what Paul says. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.